everybody. I'm Kyle Rizzo. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us, like we like to say, as soon as I can get that word out of my I'm mouth. I'm Amy Scott. <laughs> and I'm Amy Scott, in for Kimberly Adams. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. It's May 16th, and it's time that we dive deep into a single topic. Today, that topic is streaming, the economics of the streaming industry. So, with an eye on the writer's strike and what that has meant and where it has all come from, we're going to talk about how streaming has changed the way your favorite shows get made, how writers get paid or perhaps don't, and what it all means for the future of this industry of which we all partake to some degree or another, especially everything that's given uh, that's happening with AI. That's a huge part of the strike. Here to make us smart is Kate Fortmuller. She's a professor of entertainment and media studies at the University of Georgia. She is also the author of the book Below the Stars, How the Labor of Working Actors and Extras Shapes Media Production. Kate, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so look, let me start you off with a biggie. Given uh, the writer strike and what we've all been hearing about AI and mini rooms and how what we have now on streaming are shorter seasons with longer episodes, but no more of this, you know, 22 episodes of 22 minutes apiece with ad breaks, all that jazz. Has streaming broken television? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a very provocative way well, to put it. Know. Um I, well, I, I think it depends on the perspective that you are taking. I think for audiences, um, many of us would say um, that it's made television better. Um, but for writers, I think has it broken television is a is maybe a fair assessment. What about for studios? Sorry, let me just climb in here and ask the, the third part of that trifecta there, right? Audiences, writers, and, and now the studios. Well, I, well I, I think, again, that depends on the perspective that you're taking. I think if we're thinking about um, studios and networks um, that operate on these kind of older models, right? Um, television used to operate on an ad-based model and then moved to a subscription model, and then Netflix has moved to a minutes-watched model. Um, I think mm. for the legacy networks, they're still trying to really figure out how to make this um, as profitable as the broadcast mass audience ad-based model. So mm. um, I guess the, I would say the answer to that is kind of complicated. I think everyone sees a lot of potential. The question is whether or not um, it can sort of live up to mm -hmm. that potential. Mm -hmm. So Kate, from a viewer standpoint, a subscriber standpoint, it seems like there is so much out there to watch. I mean, this has been called the golden age of television or peak TV. It would seem like there are plenty of opportunities for writers. So why do they say they're having trouble making a living doing this? Well, I, you know, it, we are we are in a moment of peak TV. The number of shows have been continually going up since 2009. So there are lots of shows um, but lots of shows doesn't necessarily translate into a full year of work for individuals, right? So um, somebody might get a job for a show that is sort of a short season and then might be under contract with that show, even if they're not getting paid for a certain period that is extended from that, or they might not have the kind of experience to then get them on another show. So they might have longer breaks. Um, so really what a lot of these writers are experiencing are shorter periods of employment. I wonder if, if we ought not point out here that uh, while times have changed for the big streamers, Netflix, of course, and, and, and Disney and all the rest of them, they're still making boatloads of cash. They are making <laughs> boatloads of cash. They are always making boatloads of right. cash, right? Um, and part of what they are always trying to do is kind of increase those margins, right? 
Um, I think the other thing that we kind of haven't brought up is when we're talking about these models, one of the really big changes um, is that streaming operates on a global model. Oh, yeah. So they yeah. are really looking at this as a global business um, and thinking about their global subscriber numbers. And that really does change the kind of picture when we're thinking about how are writers then getting paid for, you know, subscriber growth in Spain? The mm. answer is they're, mm. they're really not, yeah. right? Kai mentioned this up top, but can you talk about the mini room? This is getting a lot of play in the conversations about this strike. What is the mini room and, and what do writers say is wrong with it? Yeah, so the mini room, and I think there's um, the WGA has kind of has released what they asked for when when negotiations were happening in May, what they asked for, and then what the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers countered with. So mini rooms, if you look at that chart, are also termed. Um, like pre-green light rooms. Mm -hmm. So essentially mm -hmm. what these streaming services are doing are bringing in writers to map out the entire season um, before the show has been greenlit. So they're getting a lot of writing work from them that's not tied into kind of episodic um, stuff that will come later. So what they're doing is sort of like hiring a team to do something else and then not necessarily bringing as many people on later. Um, so this is really kind of upending the structure of the room and the number of people who are getting paid um, on any given season. Just continuing with that thought, how valid do you think the the position by the Writers Guild is that what's at stake here really is writing as a profession, as an absolute profession you can make money out of? I think I think that's very much like an accurate statement. Huh. I think that this is. Um, I think that there's a lot of things that have kind of shifted in terms of. I think one of the things we can kind of think about is the rise of this term showrunner, right? Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. if you think back, right, there were some, there were like um, there were just so few kind of names that you knew associated with programs that you loved, right? Um, but this idea of the showrunner as kind of an author um, is also something that's kind of moving people away from thinking about television as a collaborative medium, um, which it very much is, right? I think um, there are many shows. Um, Writers' rooms organize their credit in different ways in terms of who gets credit for an individual episode. Some episodes of television are really written in a collaborative fashion. Um, so the number of people that are in the room are often really essential to that creative process. Um, this is also, I mean, you know, it's not physical labor, um, but this is labor that makes a lot of money for a lot of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it is an art form. It is something that you hone over time. Um, people get trained in these rooms. Um, they learn a lot by being in the room with experienced writers. And shifting all of this is making this much more casual, right? That people aren't necessarily getting trained up in the same way. Um, so if we want, I mean, if we want great television, um, which we have been enjoying, right? We've been enjoying yeah. many, many seasons of great television. But if we really want that to continue, we need to, um, we really need to think about the structure of these rooms and support writers as they try to get fairly compensated. So can we address the elephant in the living room, which is the the rise of AI and generative uh, chatbots. I understand this may be the first um, industry to really get some protections written into their contract if they're successful. Uh, the Writers Guild 
says, you know, they want um, AI to not write or rewrite anything, be used as source material. And I thought this was really interesting. Also, uh, that their content can't be used to train AI, which is interesting. How successful do you think they might be? Oh, I mean, I was going to say, as a as a scholars, we don't always like to predict. <laughs> um, that puts <laughs> us in a really, it. it does put us in a kind of scary position. Um, I guess what, I, in terms of how successful, I don't, yeah, I hate to say this. I don't know if this is going to progress um, if there isn't some sort of conversation opened up mm. about AI. I don't know that, as is the case with any negotiation, um, are they going to be able to get the AMPTP to agree to all of the things that they want to kind of be in the contract? Probably not. Um, but this look, this isn't going to happen next year. AI is not ready to start writing our television shows in 2024. Um, but the writers have to get this into their contracts so that they have a seat at the table when this becomes, when the technology improves, when this becomes a serious issue um, in 5, 10, 15, however much, however much time it takes. Um, this needs to be in their contracts so they have a place to start bargaining from. So this is part of you know, their particular contract. So I think it needs to be there. I think they're very clear that it needs to be there. They've, there's been a lot of referencing to the 2007-8 strike where the writers said that, you know, the studios were saying, oh, we don't know how profitable the internet is going to be. Right, fast forward to 2023, we know that streaming is quite profitable. So um, they need to be ahead of the game. They need to get something in now, even if it's not necessarily going to be as um, expansive as they probably want it to be. So let me just go back to where I started as sort of a way to, to, to bookend this thing. So, so not, you know, did streaming break television, but do you suppose there's a recognition that um, we're never going back, that, that streaming is now the way it is and the business model has changed? Well, um, Netflix introduced an ad-supported tier this year. So um, it's hard for me to say that the business model has totally changed. Um, what we're seeing a return to some of those legacy models. I think um, one of the things that I don't think is going to change is the kind of reliance on these shortened seasons. Mm -hmm. um, I think those those are kind of here to stay. And ultimately, miniseries have always been kind of um, a model that television has used, but on streaming, I think for the consumer, um, you know, we have a lot of television to watch. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm deciding, do I want to start this show that I haven't seen that's four seasons versus this one that's six episodes, I'm oftentimes inclined for the kind of more instant gratification, finish the show, um, feel like I'm kind of caught up. Um, so I think there's some appeal at least for audiences to keep having those shows and they allow streamers to continue to drop something constantly, right? Every week, yeah. something new. Um, so I think that is here to stay. Um, but those old models, the ad model was quite profitable. Yeah. So I think people always look back when they're trying to problem solve. It's hard to really shake some of things that were making money for many decades. All right. So look, are y'all caught up on succession? Cause that's a quick four seasons. It goes really fast. <laughs> no spoilers, Kai. No spoilers. No, no, no spoilers. 
Oh, that is <laughs> that is the show that in my house we obsessively right. obsessively wait for on Sundays. Uh, so same, yes, same here, same here. <laughs> Kate Fort Mueller is a professor of entertainment and media studies at the University of Georgia down in Athens. She's also the author of the book Below the Stars: How the Labor of Working Actors and Extras Shapes Media Production. Kate, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you. Yeah, for having thank me. you, Kate. Thank you. Man, I'm still on season one. Are so you? We can't even talk Amy about it. Scott, <laughs> just take a weekend. That's you can be I all mean, caught up. I want to support the writers here, but I'm like, I have such a backlog of TV. This, <laughs> I'm not going to notice the strike for some years. <laughs> oh, man. If you happen to be, by the way, a writer on strike, or if you've been impacted, or you've got thoughts about the direction the streaming industry is headed, let us know. We want to hear from you. Our number is 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Or you can email us, make me smart at marketplace.org. We are coming right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. All right, on the topic we were just talking about, Amy Scott has some news. You go first. Yeah, just a little more follow-up on the writer's strike. Uh, I read a piece by Megan McArdle in the Washington Post today about the potential lasting impact, and she pointed out that during the last strike, which lasted 100 days in 2007 and 2008, uh, the cost to writers and other workers from missed work was estimated to be $772 million dollars more than $2 billion in damage to the broader California economy. Um, of course, there were long-term gains for writers, like the union got jurisdiction over what was back then called new media, uh, a.k.a. writing for the <laughs> Internet. Um, but one thing, uh, I haven't been following this closely, but you may have seen others say that uh, one thing that the strike gave rise to, of course, was reality TV got a big boost because it's unscripted, which gave a big boost to The Apprentice franchise at a time when it wasn't doing so well. And uh, Megan and others say kind of, you know, was part of what boosted Donald Trump's profile and paved the way for his successful presidential run. So don't blame the writers. (laughs) Some people push back on how big a deal that was, but kind of interesting side note or footnote to this story. Yeah, I, I totally buy it that that was the big deal, by the way. 
without without that, the history of this yeah. country would be completely different. Uh, okay, mine is a little more uh, nuts and bolts, and it's an earnings report today from Home Depot, which I stole out from under uh, Amy Scott, so I apologize for that, Amy, <laughs> but, you know, I was up early. What can I tell you? Um, uh, Home Depot Early said bird today, gets the worm, That's, that's right. Uh, Home Depot, of course, the big, you know, home <clears throat> supply and, and goods store said today, uh, annual sales are going to decline this year for the first time in more than a decade as consumer spending tightens and demand for home renovation projects continues to soften. For those of you who are in the not a soft landing, but there is actually going to be a not small economic slowdown, um, this is one indicator in your favor. And, and Amy threw a really helpful graph, actually, in the rundown from uh, the Center for um, the Joint Center, rather, for Housing Studies at Harvard. Home remodeling market projected to contract, that is to say shrink, not just slow down, but actually shrink by 2024, by like a lot, by like 3% over the yeah. prior year. So um, I I actually still wonder how we can have a recession when unemployment's at 3.5, whatever it is, percent, 3.4%. Um, but this is a sign that maybe it's coming anyway. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and just one note about this is, of course, a lot of home improvement takes place when homes are bought and sold um, because mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. either fixing it up to sell or you're fixing it up after you buy a you know a, a fixer-upper. And, um, and there's just not a lot of buying and selling mm-hmm. of houses going on because of those higher interest rates. So this is kind of the, the predictable... Um, and to what had been like a decade-long boom in home improvement spending, though with more of us staying in our houses because Mm -hmm. we can't move anywhere or, you know, we don't want to give up our low mortgage rates for six-plus percent, there is going to be still, I think, some demand for for fixing up the old house (laughs) rather than moving. Yeah, for sure. All right, that's it for the News Fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, we were talking uh, last week, Kimberly and Drew and I, uh, during Half Full, Half Empty, about Wendy's using AI to take drive through orders, and we got this. This is Andrew in Houston. I called a pizza chain last month to place an order and was absolutely floored when the traditional robot menu transitioned into a seamless conversation with what was clearly an AI interface. Wow. However, not only did it not have glitches or speech delays, but it understood the nuance of my requests. When I asked for garlic on my pizza, it asked if I wanted crushed or minced. The overall Hmm. experience was so shocking, I couldn't help but talk with the employees when I got there. Turns out it's a third-party contractor that's being run on top of their in-house systems. It will definitely be interesting to see what other applications may come about from this revolution. But I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. That last part was in case they're monitoring us already. (laughs) They probably are. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I don't know. That's a little freaky. I'm just going to say that. It's a little freaky. Yeah, totally. Uh, Yeah. That's scary. I've not had that experience yet. No, me neither. Me neither. All right, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which, as you know, is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Hey, guys. This is Melissa from San Francisco. I have two young children, ages five and two. And one thing I realized that I was totally wrong about was I would go visit my friends and family that had young kids before I did and would always sit there and go, God, 
how did you let your house get so messy? <laughs> and now I don't know how they even kept it as clean as they did. Yeah. It's 9.30 at night, and I'm just starting to do dishes and have so much to do. Keeping your house clean when you have two young children is magic, and anybody that can do it should be considered a magician. Thank you guys for keeping me company while I do dishes. Totally, <laughs> totally agree. There can be no shame when there are little kids in the house. Forget it, man. All bets are off. Truly. Um, yeah. What about when the kids are older? I'm still working on that one. Well, you so. can you can you can tell them to pick up and clean up, right? I mean, that's the you deal. You can try. Yes, you can try. Yes, you can try. That is true. That is true. All right. We want to know what you've been wrong about. You can leave us a voice message with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonia Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe. Becca Weinman's going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. There it is. That's the show. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.